we've been going in the first book, first letter of Peter for some time now, some very apt and, and practical teaching about how we live. He was writing a circular letter to a group of churches in Asia, mostly Gentiles in the churches, and addressing issues in their lives and in, the, in, in their churches that had come up. And I'm dealing with 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 4 to 6 this morning. But before we go there, I'd just like to pause a moment and think about the author. This letter was written by Peter when he was in Rome about six decades after, well, six dec- the sixth decade AD. As an older man, he's sitting in Rome and he's writing this letter with what is really meaty theology. And just think for a moment where he came from. How did he get there? We first encounter him as a young man, a fisherman, uh, pretty much on his road to a, a normal life. He had a family, we know, because he had a mother-in-law who was mentioned later, so he was married and had family. And he has an encounter with Jesus Christ, who he chooses to believe when he says, follow me, and he starts to follow him, and his life begins to change, and we see the character of this man beginning to develop. A rather impetuous person, but everything he did, he did with enormous enthusiasm. And we, we see him being the first person to walk on water that wasn't Jesus. Still influenced by circumstances, he gets out the boat, he begins to walk. But when he sees the waves and the wind, he begins to sink. But he's out there, he, he, he gets into things. He's also the first person, as he spends time with Jesus, to come to realization or to acknowledge who Jesus was as Messiah. So we see a depth in his understanding of Christ coming about. And we see his, his life beginning to change. But he's still impetuous, he's still at the Last Supper, proclaims that he will never leave and he will never forsake the Lord and he'll go even to jail or to death with him and then within 24 hours has denied him and has been devastated. We see him restored and then we see him have an incredible encounter with the Holy Spirit that changes his life even further and that inconsistency and insecurity which was still persisting is taken away by the infilling of the Holy Spirit and he becomes the person who preaches one of the most successful sermons ever, 3,000 people take up an altar call when he preaches on Pentecost. And then we see him go on to lead the church in Jerusalem. He's also used by God to be the the apostle that was first used to preach to the Gentiles. Incredible. And now, some 60 years later or 50 years later, we find him sitting in Rome, probably captured. We don't know the details, but we know that he eventually died uh, as a martyr in Rome. We find him there, and I just think he must have sat sometimes and thought, how did I get here? Do you ever have those moments? How did God do this? I was sat sometime just a, how long ago was it, and about six weeks, seven weeks? I don't know how long ago we were in Cambodia. I found myself sitting under a cashew tree in an area called Batambang with a group of people sitting on a blue tarpaulin in front of us, and we were teaching God's word. And I just had this moment that I just thought, how did I get here? This little guy from South Africa who didn't travel abroad until he was in his 40s, who never ever thought of going on mission. And I'm sitting in Southeast Asia with a group of people who feel like family. God does amazing things. And just as in Peter's life, I want to say to you that that God has not finished with you. The morning that Peter got up and went down to go and take his fishing boat out, that Jesus arrived on the shore, I don't think he anticipated ever sitting in Rome writing theology. He was hoping for a good catch. He was hoping for a a good catch and a chance to go home and sell his fish and be with his family. There was no inkling in his mind of sitting in Rome in the center of what was the civilized world at that time, writing to a group of churches 
deep theology, deep truths. He never expected it. God's not finished with you yet. I don't care how old you are. I don't care what your background is. I don't know where you've come from. But if you are open to God, he's not finished with you yet. And what you're doing might change radically. I want to speak especially to the younger people here, the guys that are students in the 20-somethings. You have no idea what God's going to do with you. You know, I've been a teacher for all of my life, and I've stood in front of many assemblies, and I quite often get the sense of, I have no idea what's sitting in front of me. Maybe the next prime minister, maybe somebody who's going to do incredible things in the medical world, maybe the next Billy Graham. We never know. What made Peter different from many other people was when God said, come, he said, yes. And that's all, you know, I heard one day, and I've kept it in mind because it helps me, that God uses fat people, faithful, available, and teachable. That's what he looks for. He can teach you what you need to know. He can empower you for what he needs you to do, but he needs that faithfulness, that availability, and that teachability. And I want to encourage you. I don't say you'll be sitting in Rome writing bits of the Bible, but you might find yourself somewhere in 10 years' time, and you'll sit there thinking, how did I get here? And the answer will be, Jesus said, follow, and I said, yes. So I just wanted to drop that in as we start having a look at these four verses. And actually, I'm going to start with the verse just before that Ant ended on, because otherwise it doesn't really flow. And it says this, 1 Peter 4 verse 3, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. So that's the background. I'm not going to spend time there because Ant did except to say, don't do those things. Um, that's not deep theology. Leave out the debauchery and, and the idolatry and those things. Not good. That was deep. But now it moves on and it says this. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason that the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. And it's in the last verse that we're going to have a little bit of an interesting chat about something I don't have the answer for. But I can stir the question amongst you. But let's start right at the top. It says, you, uh, they are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. And one of the, the three points, because I'm, I'm having three points. I, most sermons have three points of poem and a prayer. I've just got the three points. Some of them have got subdivisions, but I won't have you here for an awful long time. Three points we're going to look at. And the first point is this, when we look at this chapter, the grace of God is always surprising. It surprises and sometimes overwhelms Christians. And it surprises and sometimes irritates the ungodly. As I mentioned, I've been a school teacher for all of my life. And there's an interesting thing that you see in the lives of young people, which I did as well when I was at school, and you probably did as well, if you weren't one of the guys that was a good uh, scholar. But I was one of those guys that did as much as I had to do. I've noticed it happening amongst the youngsters nowadays too. If somebody comes to school and they haven't either done their homework or they haven't prepared for a test, They don't go and sit somewhere quiet on the playground and try to address the problem. What do they do? They look for somebody else who's also not done it. Come on, you've done it too. You don't want to be around the people who've done the right thing. You want to be amongst the people who've done the wrong thing because you feel better when you have some partners in crime. That's the first thing that I want to bring from school. The second is to tell you the story of a young man I'll just call M. 
One of my happy stories from my teaching career, when I took over the school that I ran for 21 years here in, in, in the UK, back in April of 99, I inherited a young man who I shall call M, who was, and this is used in a, a pedagogic and educational sense, he was a thug. He was unkind, he was angry, he was rude, he was obstructive, and he was a bully. And we clashed. Quite early on in my time there, the two of us clashed and continued to clash until one day I had him and his dad in my office and I was delivering the final, 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 final warning after Grace had been exercised. And I said to him, this can't go on. And I spent some time talking to his dad. Now, I tell you this because something, somewhere that someone said to him dropped into the right space and he decided to change. And I'll jump to the end of the story before going back to the middle probably the happiest moment in my teaching career of some 40 years was handing him his GCSE results some years later because he did exceptionally well and he's gone on to be a fine young man and it was just one of those situations and seasons when you see someone turn around but the interesting thing for me observing him when he decided to change his life was he didn't get any flack from the people that were the people he had bullied the people that he'd been unkind to, the people who he had called boffins when they did well in the test and had mocked. He got no opposition from them. They were glad to see him changing. He got opposition from the guys that he'd left behind. The other bullies. The other ones. We don't, as human beings, have a nice trait. Well, we have a trait that's not very nice. We, we, if we're in the wrong, we like to have company. And when we see people trying to improve their lives, we sometimes try and tear it down. And these guys are being warned and encouraged. There's a difficulty in breaking the image that's been established and it applies both on a personal level but also in terms of the culture that you're in and also in terms of culture in general. When we decide to become Christians and we decide to live differently, it doesn't meet with universal approval. That's a reality. We're excited about it. We are full with joy. We want everybody to know about Jesus and we run into a situation where the Christians that we've been mocking before are so glad to have us as part of their family, but the guys that we used to carouse with, these guys that went into the debauchery and, and the licentious living, they're the ones who say, oh, what's wrong with you? And nobody seems to know better how a Christian should live than a non-Christian. They can see our faults in a hundred meters away and can criticize us, and it's hard. It seems unfair. Right now, we're not very popular. I mean, the church is growing and... and, and I'm not talking about this church, I'm talking about the church of God is growing and flourishing, but it's, it's under persecution, even in this country, not so much from physical abuse or anything of that nature, but by being sidelined and ridiculed. And it's interesting to me how our culture is so busy with that. I, I just remember some time ago that Richard Dawkins, the humanist, went on record on the, on the radio saying that Christian parents who raised their children to believe in a creator was something that was tantamount to child abuse. And I find it interesting that he's just recently been cancelled because of his opinions on gender and transgender. So he's now also out of fashion. The great cancellor has been cancelled. But we live in a society that turns on us when we choose to be different and we choose to live for a different reason. Um, we now face accusations of discrimination and bigotry. And, and, and the truth is that we haven't helped ourselves sometimes in those areas. But I don't know about you, but sometimes I just hear people going on about Christians and I think it isn't fair. Have you ever felt like that? We're actually the good guys. 
And I've, I've noticed, I don't know if you have too, but quite often when there's a talk show and it's multi-faith and there are different aspects being discussed, somehow they always find the weirdest Christian to represent us. <laughs> you know, we don't, we don't have somebody who looks normal and, and it's some guy wearing a tinfoil hat or something and, and conspiracy theories falling out of his pockets and he represents us and, and everybody else is dignified and we've got the weirdo. And it doesn't seem fair. And the first thing that Peter says to these people is that these guys are not going to be your fans. They're not going to support you. You are under condemnation. You are under martyrdom. But he then says this. He says in the next verse, but they will have to give account to him who's ready to, ju who's ready to judge both the living and the dead. And he talks about accountability and a judgment. And that's where I need to stop for my next point because the truth is that there is definitely going to be an accounting and a judgment that takes place. God's judgment day will be a reply to all injustices. Truth will be revealed, facts and motives brought to light, retribution and consequences and rewards, and the reality of the consequences of the choices that we've made. This is something we don't always talk about. But there is coming a time when God will say, that's long enough, and he will judge living and the dead and he will say these guys have taken an opportunity to accept my salvation and these guys have not and there will be consequences I don't like a theology which spends all the time trying to frighten people into heaven I don't like trying to argue people into heaven the Bible says if we lift Jesus up he will draw men unto him but we sometimes throw the baby out of the bathwater. and I need to say this this morning that if you are somebody who has heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you've chosen not to follow that, there is a consequence that will follow. I would be unfair to you if I didn't tell you that God has said that except a person is born again, John 3, 3, except a man is born again, he cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. There is a consequence and it's a reality, and there will be a time when God will say, that is the, the plumb line that we take. But I want to go wider than that in looking at this verse, because knowing that what do we as Christians, how do we respond? I was sitting watching the TV some time ago and it was a, one of these panel shows and there were some very clever and very witty people involved. And they got onto Christian bashing. And I won't mention the name of the, of the celebrity, but he's a very clever, very clever, very funny man. But he said something about Christians and, and I just got so angry. And God forgive me, but into my mind came, you'll get it one day. Because he was openly mocking God, challenging God, and being incredibly disrespectful towards God. And this thing inside me was, God will get you one day. You'll be sorry. And I had to repent immediately because how should we respond to the fact that there is this judgment coming? We need to warn people that there's a judgment coming, but it needs to be because we are motivated. My immediate thought was, oh God, forgive me for being angry with him. Let me pray for him that he will be changed. The sense of retribution coming and consequence coming to those who haven't accepted the gospel and reward coming to those who have is one that should inspire you if you are a Christian and you've made that decision to bring as many people with you. I don't know where the term came from. It just popped into my mind when I was preparing about people rushing towards destruction with their fingers in their ears. And that's the world we live in at the moment. And there's an urgency involved. We need to not just say, well, there'll be a judgment. I'm okay, Jack. I'm all right. I've done what I need to do, I'll be safe. But there needs to be that motivation for us to move forward in trying to bring as many people with us. And then comes this 
third verse, which is where Anne said there's some controversy, and there's quite a bit of controversy around this verse. It says, For this is the reason that the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but living, live according to God in regard to the spirit. And it's one of those verses where you think, I'll just skip that one. Because it involves the controversy around preaching to the dead and all that's arisen around it. Now, I've been into a number of concordances and commentaries in the last couple of days, in the last week or so, and I can't find consistency in what people say. Michael Eaton, for example, who I have enormous respect to, says he finds nothing in the book of Peter that mentions, that he interprets as the dead being preached to. He says that that refers to a situation that people were preached to when they were alive and they've subsequently died. And the reason that he mentions it, he believes, is that the Peter mentioned is that it's to encourage people that the consequences and rewards for Christians are there whether we're alive or dead. Even death cannot separate us from the, the positive consequences and rewards that await us. At this time, there was quite a lot of persecution going on and Christians were dying. And some of the pagans were saying, if you were Christians, how come you're dying as well? And, and someone like Michael Eaton says, Peter is talking about this and saying, even though they're dead now, even though they've suffered and they've been abused, the reward and the, and the judgment for them will be positive and God will reward them for what they've done. But there are others like Ellicott and even to some extent Matthew Henry who say things like this. For this cause was the gospel preached them that are dead. This version is misleading, says Ellicott, he says, and seems to indicate, seems indeed to be one of those rare cases where the original has been expanded by the translators for doctrinal ends. The Greek is simply, for this end was the gospel preached to the dead also, or more literally to dead men also. And he says, no one with a preoccupied, without a preoccupied mind could doubt taking this clause by itself that the person to whom the preaching was made was dead at the time of being preached. Now, what's this all about? There is a line of thinking, and there's a, a theology in this debate that says that when Jesus died on the cross, he descended into heaven, fought with Satan, sorry, into hell, <laughs> descended late into heaven, descended into hell, fought with Satan, won a victory, took the keys to death and sin, and led the captives who were there free. In other words, people got a second chance. That is broken into many different teachings which involve, for example, a, believing, uh, a belief structure that says that there are two places that people went to before Christ died on the cross, that there was a place of waiting for those who had endeavored to serve God but had not been born again in Jesus because he hadn't died yet, and a place for those who had lived an evil life. And that was supported for those who believe that by the, the story of Lazarus in Luke chapter 16, verses 22 to 26. It says, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abram's side. So people following this particular philosophy said that there's a place that was called Abram's side, the presence of God's people. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades or Sheol, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abram far away with Lazarus by his side. There are other scriptures that are used. John 3.13 says, No one's ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven. This is in the conversation with Nicodemus. And they're saying that nobody went straight to heaven before Jesus died on the cross, so that there was this reconciliation, a second chance for these people to actually acknowledge the proclamation that Jesus made, that he had made victory on the cross, and that they were able to follow him out from hell back into paradise. Um, the concern about that is it's given rise to the teaching of purgatory, and the concept that people believe that you have a second chance even now, that if you are 
If you don't know that teaching, basically, if you're a really evil person, you go straight to hell. If you're a really, really good person, you go straight to heaven. And the rest of us go to a place of cleansing where we suffer for our sins proportionately and then go to heaven, which is not something that we in the Protestant structure believe in, but it's been derived from this. So we're sitting with a situation where there are people who are adamant that the dead were not preached to, that there was just a proclamation made, and there are those that are adamant that he didn't, and Anne said to you at the beginning of my, my, my talk to you that we had a chat this week about it, and we never got to a conclusion. It's really difficult sometimes. That there, you know, I would love to be able to say to you that I have the answer to this one and I can tell you the definitive answer and you can tell people in years to come that is the 28th today? 29th. On the 29th of May 2022, you were in the meeting where Clive Case finally put to rest the controversy of preaching to the dead. But I don't have the answer. What I can put before you is the following. Anything that says that we don't have to make a decision now is something that I can't support. Jesus, when he was on the cross, said to the, the, the guy who was next to him, this day you will be in, with me in paradise. And there's another scripture I want to read to you in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 26 and 27. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but he has appeared once, he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then it says this, just as people are destined to die once and after that the judgment. I want to say to you the time to make the decision is now. Quite sternly, let me find my notes. Matthew Henry says this, God will certainly reckon with all those who have had the gospel preached to them, but without the good effects produced by it. God is ready to judge all those who have received the gospel in vain. It is no matter how we are judged according to men in flesh, if we do but live according to God in the spirit. There is a judgment. I need to talk about it. I need to say it. I've, 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 I've spoken about it. We can't avoid the fact that there is a situation where we need to make life and death decisions. If you're sitting here and you've heard about Jesus, he wants you to be part of his family. How do we do that? We acknowledge that he died for us on the cross, that through that he paid the price for our sins, that if we acknowledge that and we accept him as Lord and we exchange our life with his, we become what Jesus himself called born again. We have a new life, not a panel beaten one, a new life. We are free from sin. We are free from guilt. But we have to make that decision. And there's so many people who would say, I believe that, but they haven't actually done anything about it. And I just feel moved to tell you my story about the tightrope walker again, which I might have done for some of you. Some time ago, a tightrope walker set up a tightrope over the Niagara Falls. He put up the tightrope and he, and he announced he was going to be doing a performance and a large crowd of people came. And when they came, he stood up and he said, do you believe that I can walk across this tightrope to the other side of the Niagara Falls and walk back. And the crowd, were, they were keen to see the spectacle, so they obviously said, yes, we believe. And so he hopped up on the tightrope and walked over, and as they always do, there was a wobble in the middle just to get the crowd going. Got to the other side, walked back confidently, and the crowd went wild. He then said, do you believe that I can take this wheelbarrow and push it across the tightrope to the other side and bring it back? And the crowd, wanting to see the spectacle, said, yeah, we believe. And so he got up on the tightrope and he pushed his wheelbarrow across the, wheel, the, the Niagara Falls and turned around and came back and wobbled in the middle to get the crowd going. 
brought it back. And then he said this. He said, do you believe that I can push this wheelbarrow across the Niagara Falls with someone sitting in it and bring it back safely? And the crowd wishing to see the spectacle said, yes, we believe. And he said, right, who's getting in the wheelbarrow? Why am I telling you this? If you're sitting here and you believe about Jesus and you believe the things that you see in the Bible but you haven't got in the wheelbarrow, it's time to do it now. Faith is when you put your belief into action and you can have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning by faith, by saying, I believe what you say and I will give my life to you as a consequence. And I want to urge you, if you haven't done that, I couldn't read the scripture and go through it. Did the people in hell get preached to? I don't know what the context of this was. Is Michael Eaton right? Is Ellicott right? I don't know. I find myself at one moment thinking this one goes right. It's a good thing in the church that we can discuss things and we can have a look and we can say, let's have a debate about this. But this doesn't change one thing about what I need to do and what you need to do. We need Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior now. Have the debate later. But we need to have Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior now. And I want to encourage you not to be sidetracked by theological differences and by debates that we can have. They're fascinating. There are so many parts of the Bible where I can have debates with people that I absolutely enjoy, but they have nothing to do with my imminent need to have salvation. And so I just leave that with you, those three things that God's grace surprises us and sometimes irritates others and that we are having to deal with that that there is a vindication for Christians, that there will be a day. You know, I, I repented when I thought God will get you one day about that radio or that TV announcer, but there is a, a joy that one day publicly God will say, you were right to accept me. One day God will say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter in and enjoy the reward. There's a joy in that that keeps me going. And then finally, he will judge the living and the dead. Your reward will not be stopped by death and the consequences of your choices will be not be stopped by death. We get to make those choices now and I want to encourage you to make those choices right now. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've promised that it will go out and achieve your purpose and I ask you to do that with what we've said today. I pray, Lord, for any person sitting here who's, as it were, not got into the wheelbarrow yet, who's not made the decision to have Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And I pray that right now your presence will overwhelm them and they will make that decision. I pray for the rest of us that we'll be encouraged that we will see your reward and see your vindication one day, even though now we might not find what we are doing to be popular and easy. Thank you that you never leave us or forsake us, that your Holy Spirit goes through everything with us and encourages us. And thank you for the transformation that we've noted in Peter's life, and we pray for that transformation in our lives, Lord, that we'll go from being fishermen to being apostles in whatever the plan and path is that you have for our lives. We love you, Lord. We love you for your presence with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.